So we as a church have been going through the short little New Testament book called Colossians, um, which if you've been with us for any period of time, you'll know it's not just this thing in the Bible. It's a real letter written by the Apostle Paul to a real church 2,000 years ago, church in the city of Colossae, a Roman church, uh, people coming out of Roman paganism into faith in Christ. And Paul is addressing real issues with them. And as much as he addresses issues with them, he's addressing those very same issues with us. And some of you are saying, Stephen, how can you say this is a short little book? We're already in like week 11 or 12 or so, and we're not even halfway. Um, And I'll explain why we're doing it now. Um, And in case you're joining us, and just to serve as a reminder for everybody here, let's just cover some of the ground that Paul has covered so that when we get to today's topic, man, we're all excited for what it means. So Paul is speaking into this context. There's a church that has all sorts of issues. There's issues that Paul's made aware of, and he's writing to them. And his big goal is, man, I want you guys to become fully alive in Christ. I, I, I don't want that just to be an idea. I want that to be a reality for you. And so what he does is, he doesn't start off with 50 do's and don'ts. He starts off taking his time saying, here's what I really want for you. I want you to know Christ. I want you to know the reality of Christ in you. And I pray that the Spirit does that in your life. Because he knows if he does like sometimes we do, they're just gonna sit and listen to a sermon. Nothing's gonna change. So he says, unless the Spirit of God opens your mind and your heart to see this, Nothing's gonna change. So here's what I want for you. And then he speaks of Christ, some of the most beautiful poetic literature about Christ in the whole New Testament, the end of Colossians chapter one, speaking about Christ's supremacy, Christ being first in all things. And then he says, he transitioned then from there to Christ. That Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And that's like a mic drop moment. Like what? How can that Christ be in me? And Paul's saying, yes. If it's blowing your mind, you're beginning to get it. And then he talks about you being in Christ, Christ in you and you in Christ. Then he talks about the victory of Christ on the cross. We covered that in Easter. And then he transitions into getting insanely practical with his word, therefore. And literally the first few things he decides to speak about, I don't know, I would have maybe picked some other things to start off with, uh, going gently. But Paul says, well, listen, if all of this is true, if Christ is superior, if Christ is first in all things, and if He is in you and you're in Him, and if this victory is true, therefore, you guys need to think about what you eat and what you drink. So what does it mean to live on this side of of the balance sheet in terms of Christ's Lordship in my life? He speaks to us about what we're gonna eat and what we're gonna drink. He speaks to us about how we celebrate special days and how we think about those who maybe don't do it in the same way we do it. Then last week, I, I never thought we'd ever preach about this stuff, but Craig spoke about angels. That's how practical Paul is getting. But we're gonna remind you every week that we can't get stuck into the nitty gritty details of the how and the practicalities of life without reminding you that this has to come first. We always need to be constant, uh, sorry, cognizant of the primacy and the lordship of Christ in my life. And only then can I think about what it looks like in real life. Usually, if there's a problem over here, there's a problem over here. If we're struggling in obedience, if we're struggling in living it out, there's usually a struggle of worship. There's usually a struggle of submission to this Christ. So every single week, we're gonna remind you of this. But here's something we all know. 
Um, even if you're not a Christian here this morning, and if you're not a Christian here this morning, we're so glad you're here uh, checking Christ out because you're not checking us out, you're checking Him out. Nonetheless, whether you've been a Christian for 20 minutes or 20 years, you know that you don't somehow automatically become like a saint, right? There's a bit of a journey starting off with recognizing who Christ is and then somehow figuring out what does it look like in real life. And some of you are saying, just, just help me, just show me, show me what this looks like. Show me what this practically looks like in family and in marriage. And that's gonna start looking like a little bit of, of direction, a little bit of boundaries, do this, don't do that. And, and the, the reality for some of us is some of us like that. Some of us like being helped to, you know, this is what it looks like. Some of us don't. And here's the thing, and here's the reason I mentioned earlier why we are going through this book so slowly. It's because we recognize that God does want to train us in the ways of following Him. And, and we want to allow God and God's Word to set the agenda. So if the agenda is, let's fix our eyes on Christ's supremacy, that's the agenda for the day. And if the agenda is talking about what this means in terms of what we eat and drink, then that's the agenda for the day. And as we go from week to week, we recognize that God's word, or that rather God is using his word and his spirit, which convicts us, to literally disciple us. If this is true, here's what it looks like in your life. And it's one of the main reasons why we encourage a regular attendance on a Sunday and in life group. It's not so that we can go on a Sunday, on a Tuesday at our staff meeting and give each other a high five and a pat on the back and say, wow, church was full on a Sunday. No, it's more recognizing that if God is gonna disciple us, the more I rock up and recognize that God is gonna speak to me powerfully today about an issue and I'm gonna figure out what this looks like and I'm gonna try and, and live this out and the next week God is gonna disciple me in a new way and the following week God is gonna to speak to me about another issue and then he's gonna to speak to me about angels. I've never even thought about angels but wow, now I've got so much to think about. God is literally discipling us and I really encourage that as you come to church on a Sunday, it's not that so that I can entertain you because as far as an entertainer goes, I'm horrible at that. And it's not so that our worship team can entertain you. It's so that we can together come under God's presence and His power, give Him the glory He deserves, and that allow His Word to shape us. It's one of the other reasons why we strongly encourage people to be in life groups. Because it's not like God is heaven in heaven going, oh wow, Steve, you went to church, well done, job done. No, faith in action is what counts. It's not that I listened to a sermon, it's when I start living that out in obedience. And I know I need people around me to help me live it out. And sometimes listening to a podcast isn't enough. I don't get to stop. Uh, one of my favorite preachers I like listening to is a guy called Chris Brown, not Rihanna's husband, by the way. Um, I don't get to stop and say, what did you mean by that, Chris? Or, or what do you guys think it means? Uh, how can we support one another? And that's what Life Group is there for. Because the ultimate goal is not just to tick our religious boxes but to have transformed, obedient lives that are fully alive to Christ. So um, as we go into today's message, we're looking at some of these directives. We're looking at sometimes what it looks like practically to have the Lordship of Christ in my life. Now, when it comes to practical wisdom or practical instruction as to what I should and shouldn't do in life, there is no shortage of bad advice out there. Right? Some of you have experienced it. 
I was kind of getting into rock music in my 80s, in the 80s and the 90s. And I don't know if some of you guys were around there, but there was these flyers going around and there was this propaganda around all these satanic bands out there. So maybe some of you were told in church authoritatively that the band KISS actually stands for Knights in Satan's Service. Anyone remember that? And ACDC, no, no, that's not what it really means. ACDC stands for Antichrist, the devil's children. Right, and, and some of you are told that the Beatles, oh, they, they're satanic because of some backwards word or backwards picture. I, I remember even being told that Michael W. Smith is a satanist because there's one album cover, the word was written backwards and that's what satanists do. Like, okay. So what started happening in the 80s and the 90s were these CD burning youth group parties. Did any of you partake in that? Maybe don't put up your hand. But um, <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is what it really means to be a Christian. Forget about Jesus, just burn your pagan CDs, right? And, and, and these rules become the new kind of godliness. And as long as you're burning your pagan CDs, that proves that you're a Christian. And what starts to happen is you, you look through your Bible and you're like, oh, I don't read anything about burning CDs. Maybe, maybe my youth pastor is not telling me the truth. I mean, Bianca and I have two sister friends who were told in their little church that literally, I mean, up to this phase that they actually believed the leaders, they were told, don't dance with a boy because you might get pregnant. So like, oh, okay. And then like, between the Bible and some other books on the topic, it's like, uh, that's not how that happens. So, <laughs> what's going on here? And so there's a tendency in so many of our hearts to add to God's Word, to bring man-made rules. And some of us have that tendency, for the sake of today, we're gonna call that legalism. And some of us get so hurt and burnt by that, we tend to go the other way, and that's the way of license. So Paul, because he knows how dangerous these man-made rules can be, he takes his head on, and we're also gonna show how Jesus takes his head on. So, Let's read together, Colossians chapter two, verses 20 onwards. Colossians two, verses 20 onwards. It's just picking up from where we left off last week. Paul starts off by saying, since you died with Christ in the, to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, to the world and these basic principles, why do you still submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These, these rules are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teaching. Let's pause there for a second. So what Paul has in mind are a specific kind of rules. There are these human rules. There's human rules that if you pace through the Bible and if you look at the gospel and if you try and understand God's heart, you're not gonna see anything like that in here. Because I do wanna be crystal clear if you read through the Bible, there are a whole lot of don'ts. Even in the New Testament, even under grace, God is saying, don't do certain things. We spoke about two of them a number of weeks ago. When Paul opens up speaking practically about the Lordship in our lives, he's saying, listen, don't get drunk and don't be a glutton. In other words, don't get into excess in these kinds of things. Because when God says don't do something, he always has something for you. Remember, God is the ultimate shepherd in our lives. And he's saying, listen, sheep, I, I know you think you know what's best for you, but actually I know what's best for you, right? And that's something we need to, I think that's a trust moment for us. And Jesus is saying, listen, you think this food is good, that food is even better. 
So let me lead you that way. So don't go this way. Come with me this way. You see, when God gives us a don't, it's for our flourishing. God is not up there in heaven trying to find every way to kill our fun. Even though sometimes it may feel like that, right? But then what happens is, whoa, we don't want to go down you know, and the fun zone and then we start saying, well, if God is in an anti all these things, then surely he's anti anything that looks like fun. So, so we're gonna add a whole lot of extra don'ts, 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 don'ts. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And that's how we measure whether other people fit into these categories of Christian or not by these man-made rules. And Paul says, but, but you've died to that. So why are you living as if you're still alive to that? And then he goes on to say, such regulations, this is so important indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatments of the body. See, and here's why legalism can look so attractive. Because it appears holy. It appears like godliness. I mean, these are people who appear to be worshiping God. They're at church nine nights a week. All right, they're involved in everything. They signed up for every missions trip. There's this appearance of humility. There's this appearance of wisdom. There's this appearance, oh, they're so godly because they say no to everything in their lives. Wow, that's what righteousness looks like, this appearance. And Paul is saying, but listen, appearances can be deceiving. See, there's a problem when our faith is orientated primarily around human don'ts, human rules. So the problem with that is this. They lack any value. This is the last part of this verse. They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There's a crazy story about a guy called St. Benedict, uh, after which the Benedictine monks were named. Um, apparently, every time he felt lustful thoughts come up within him, he used to throw himself into a thorn tree and thrash around until his, literally, his body was bleeding and then all thoughts of lust had departed from him. So um, there was no way of kind of <laughs> sinning sexually, uh, secretly because everyone would know, right? Um, I think some of your parents are like saying, oh, I think that sounds like a good idea for my kids. But um, <laughs> you know, the, the, imagine that was the new rule. Listen, if you're in this youth group, every time you feel lustful thoughts, throw yourself into a tree. <laughs> and to be honest, it may work, but... Um, Here's what Paul's saying. You may get some sort of external conformity, but that doesn't have the power to change the heart. And, and the heart is the root of wickedness. So how are we gonna change the heart? Even when the answer, this was the problem with the Pharisees. Jesus says, man, outside you're like whitewashed tombs, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Outside, you look like the picture of religious conformity. Inside, you're as evil and wicked as everybody else you're judging. And this is why Paul takes this so seriously. Larry Osborne, uh, author and a church pastor that I enjoy and really learned a lot from him, uh, he calls these Pharisees, he calls, he calls illegalists the jerks for Jesus. That's because all done in Jesus' name, but suddenly conforming to a certain set of artificial rules becomes far more important than issues of justice and mercy and compassion. Where, where uniformity becomes far more important than unity. 
where somehow all the physical don'ts somehow automatically give me a spiritual credit, right? And somehow abstaining from everything somehow leads me on a path of unity, uh, so sorry, of purity. And Paul's saying that doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. So some of you grew up like that. That's the home that you grew up in. That's the church that you grew up in or, or, or a season of church that you went to. And some of you kind of maybe have a tendency towards that. It's good to recognize that your tendency is towards legalism. But some of you got so hurt and burnt by legalism that the pendulum is swinging this way to license. And you've got sunburn to anything that feels like a rule, whether it's a man-made rule or even if it literally comes out the mouth of Jesus, like, oh, it feels like a rule. And in the name of being anti-legalistic, you're living on this side of the equation. You're living in license. And you're proud of the fact that you're not a legalist. And legalists are proud of the fact that they're not in license. And what starts to happen is in our lives, and maybe even in our individual lifetimes, we swing from one to the other. So some of you are swinging from legalism towards license. Some of you are swinging from license towards legalism. Sometimes it happens in one day. You wake up feeling you know, completely convicted about certain things. Something goes wrong and you're like, oh, no, no, but there's grace, right? Sometimes we feel legalistic about certain issues and licentious about other issues. And so it's quite complex, but we need to recognize what's going on in our hearts here. Some of us get way too excited on the, on the legalistic side about rules that are not even in the Bible, not even hinted at. And then on the license side, sometimes we are okay with things that we should not be okay with. Now, to help us understand this, let's use marriage as an illustration. Now, whether you've been married or are aspiring to be married, I mean, I don't know if anyone has ever dreamt about marriage like this. Oh, I can't wait for the day I get married. I can't wait for the day that I get to say I do to my chosen person and spend the rest of my days with them. And I can't wait to live out this marriage by saying, no, I won't do that. No, I won't do that. I'm not gonna 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 do that. Oh, I can't wait for a covenantal partnership. Absolute joyless commitment to one another. Right? See, here's the problem with that kind of marriage. No one looks in and says, I want that. That doesn't inspire love. And in the same way, the God of legalism is not attractive to anyone. Yes, you've got this commitment to him, but you're not, lacking, you're not experiencing joy and hope. You're living in this, this cage of boundaries created by yourself, artificial boundaries. And people are looking in and saying, I don't want that God. If that's God, I don't want anything to do with it. No one heard you say, Oh, I'm not gonna watch that movie because I'm a Christian, even if it's valid, and go, oh, I can't wait to be a Christian then, right? And yet on the other side, when you imagine a marriage without any boundaries, just say what you want, whenever you want, she says. Do what you want, come home when you want, sleep with who you want, dream about who you want, let your kids do whatever they want, right? And oh, well, no, we've got a great marriage, why? Oh, we're not these guys. We've got a great marriage because we're defined by not being them, right? And we know marriage needs boundaries in order for it to not be not fun. Marriage needs boundaries in order to flourish, right? In order that you get to enjoy each other. You're transformed into greater degrees of holiness because of those good God-given boundaries. And in the same way, 
God, when He gives us boundaries, He's not saying, oh, under grace, anything goes. By any means, no. He's saying, no, listen, there are boundaries. This is what it looks like to practically follow me. If I am Lord in your life, there are times I'm gonna say, don't do this. But because of what I want for you, know what's what I want from you. I want your marriage to flourish. I want your identity to flourish. I want greatest joy in your life. And sometimes it means helping you say no to things that give lesser joy. Somehow, by going down the route of, the route of legalism and license, we lose out on greater joy that God wants for us. We lose out on God's heart. So there's another story that we've talked about a number of times here at Riverside. So if you've been here for any longer than five minutes, I apologize. It's probably the 20th time you've heard me talk about it. But there's this great story that's so powerful to explain so much about the Christian faith. The, prodigal, the, the story known by many of us as the prodigal son. Timothy Keller wrote a book about it called The Prodigal God. Prodigal meaning the God of excess, right? And, and, and the grace displayed in that story is, is excessive grace. And that's what we ought to be celebrating. Nonetheless, even if you're not a follower of Christ, you've probably heard the story or some variant of the story. So here goes the little story. Jesus is telling um, about a father who lives on a farm. He's got two sons, an elder son and a younger son. At some stage, the younger son, he goes the route of license, the younger son goes, I'm sick of my father's house. I'm sick of the rules. I'm sick of him telling me what I can, I cannot do. You know what? The outside world looks so much better. You know what would make me happy if I had lots of sex? You know what made me happy if I had lots of money? You know what made me happy if I went to lots of parties and lots of friends? He became so convinced of that in his own mind and that his father's house was like this jail cell. Dad, give me my inheritance. I'm gonna go define my own happiness out there. His father with a broken heart does that. His son goes out into, into the world and for a few fleeting moments, he's experiencing the kind of joy that he thought he ought to be experiencing until the money ran out, the girls ran out, the parties ran out and the friends ran out and he hits rock bottom. And at the bottom, he looks back saying, you know what, my dad's place wasn't as bad as I thought. Let me go back. But you know what, I completely messed up. And I don't deserve to walk back and just be a son. So maybe I can be a slave on his farm. So I'm gonna go back, tell him how I've messed up and I'm gonna be a servant on the farm for the rest of my days. He's got this little speech plan. He comes home, sees his father. He's expecting to tell his father how he's so happy to kind of not be a son and just a slave. And his father says, no ways, you are my son. Here's a ring on your finger. Here's a cloak on, on your back and we're gonna celebrate your return. That's the younger son. Most of us know the younger son's story quite well. But then there's another son, the older son. See, when his brother comes back, the older son hears this noise and he says to the servants, well, what's going on? No, 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 your younger brother's back. Servants may be expecting his older brother to go, wow, I'm so glad. He goes, oh, I can't believe he's back. After what he did, he dares to show his face around here. After he broke father's heart, uh, after how he tossed name, after how he wasted our inheritance, after he sinned like that, he comes back here and our dad welcomes him with open arms, throws him a party, that's pathetic. I'm the one who stuck around. I'm the one who obeyed all the rules. I'm the one who listened to dad. I'm the watch, one who watched his broken heart. I'm the one, and he literally uses the word, I'm the one who slaved around here at home. Sometime later, the father realizes the older brother is not in the party, goes outside, sees the older brother, says, what's wrong? Come back inside, let's celebrate. Like, no, I can't. 
I've done all of this for you. And the story ends with the older brother outside and the younger brother inside. Now, as much as you maybe have heard the story told a number of times about God's grace, when we come and we recognize our sin and God affirms us as sons and daughters in Christ, which is so true, just as much as the point of today's text is against legalism, so the point of Jesus telling the story is against legalism. It's against the older brother. And the reason why we know that is because at the beginning of Luke 15, Jesus is surrounded by younger brothers. And they're just loving Jesus. They're loving his teachings. The older brothers, the Pharisees, they're standing at the back. The ones who so-called have the perfect religious record, they're standing at the back going, oh, how can Jesus sit and eat with these guys? Doesn't he know they're sinners? And then Jesus tells a story to them. You're the older brother. And he leaves a story with them outside the party. With this massive question mark. Are you going to repent of your legalism and come inside. This is why Jesus guns for them and this is why Paul guns for them. You see, this isn't a story about a good Christian, the older brother, and a bad Christian, the younger brother. This is a story about two brothers who are equally far from God. This is about a story who the one brother, his sin is what kept him from God. And the older brother, his self-righteousness is what kept him from God. Both brothers wanted the father for what the father could do for them. Neither of them wanted the father himself. Neither, neither of them wanted the father. Neither of them knew the father. And in this case, for reasons we'll explain in a second, the younger brother was able to return, to repent, to come back in. The older brother was actually unable to do that. Timothy Kelly, in speaking of this story, this is what he says about the older brother, the legalist, the Pharisee. He says, the older brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It is not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness, his own righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of the father. So, so, so Stephen, why is Jesus being so hard on the older brother? See, here's the thing. If you're the younger brother, you know it. You don't like wake up with a hangover the next day and like, how did that happen? Got no idea. Like, what happened? You don't wake up in the bed of another woman and be like, oh, yeah, whoops. No. <laughs> you know, right? You know when you're the younger brother. You know when you're crossing God-given boundaries. You know when you're finding and defining your own joy according to your own standards. You know it. It's obvious to you and it's obvious to everybody else. But it's the older brother. You see, Paul says, the legalistic way has an appearance of wisdom. The way of legalism has an appearance of humility. It's self-imposed worship and false humility. So therefore, it becomes so much harder to see in the mirror, which is why the older brother was left outside of the party. And which is why I'm convinced that it is only the Holy Spirit that can convict us, either of license or of legalism. So Stephen, what's the answer? 
If seeking joy in defining my own happiness is not the answer, or if defining joy by rule keeping is not the answer, what is the answer? And, and, and you're gonna hate me for this because the answer is next week, all right? Next week is the answer. Um, and I don't wanna to steal too much of next week's thunder. Feel free to read ahead and ask God to start teaching you about what's happening next week. But the answer is not in legalism or license. The answer is in growing to love the person at the center of our lives, Jesus. And yes, when we live out faithful lives, lives of, and I'm gonna use the word, lives of obedience, lives of saying yes to certain things and no to certain things. That is not because, well, if I do too many wrongs, God's gonna maybe send me to hell. So just in case, let me make sure that my goods outweigh my bad. Oh, lost because of a bad week. Oh, let me go to church four times this week, you know? Just in case I die. Oh, okay, well, you know, there's a judge up in heaven and, and, and he's gonna condemn me, so I'm gonna behave. Or, or Steve said I'm not, so I'm gonna behave. No, no, no. Our lives of obedience, our joyful life of, lives of obedience, because number one, we've become convinced that God is for you. He wants your life to flourish. He's the one who gets to define what flourishing looks like. But he says, listen, if you truly want to be fully alive to Christ, here's what it looks like. And just like the younger brother and the older brother try to find happiness apart from the presence of the Father, true joy is gonna be found by experiencing the fullness of the Father, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second thing that's gonna shift in our hearts is not just that our lives are fueled by having the God of creation at the center of our lives, but also when we realize my life is not about me. It's not about if I'm just happy or if I'm obeying the rules. It's about the future of my kids. It's about my family, it's about my wife, it's about my husband, it's about my neighbors, it's about my colleagues. It's about all the, 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 the eternal and present future of all the people in my lives. So therefore, I'm gonna experience greatest joy by partnering with Jesus and His presence and His power and living out of that space. So vertically, man, I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And horizontally, I'm being salt and light and I'm being effective for the kingdom of God. And for that reason, I joyfully obey. So this is where the gospel comes in. We are gonna be coming together as a church to the Lord's table to eat, the bread which signifies Christ's broken body and to drink of the grape juice which represents Christ's shed blood for us. Of course, Easter was not too far behind. But in terms of a response, I wanna challenge you by rereading verse 20 this morning. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? In other words, if in Christ you died, why are you acting as if you haven't? And I want to invite you this morning to die. Please don't actually die. Uh, <laughs> another way of saying it is to repent. Where for the legalist this morning, I'm going to die to this weird need I've got within me to find my meaning and purpose as a rule keeper. And it has been a joyless existence for me. So why am I living like that? 
And, and, and what's on the other side of dying? Well, the other side of dying is uh, brought to us, just the verse that we read on Easter, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. The goal of our death is to come alive to something greater. Not to come alive to what makes me feel good and define my own happiness, but to come alive to Christ. This is why Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, therefore, if I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So I'm gonna pray for the Holy Spirit to convict you whether you're on the side of legalism or the side of license, that that side of you dies because it's, you've been united with Christ in his death. And at the same time, that you position yourself as you die to come alive to Christ. And as you respond from a sincere place of worship and a sincere de desire to come fully alive to Jesus, come forward in your own time, there'll be music playing gently Take some of the bread, take some of the grape juice and do business with God. Ask the Spirit to help you die and ask the Spirit to help you come alive to Him. Because that changes everything. Holy Spirit, you have spoken to us by your word, the word that you authored. You have spoken to us about the superiority of Christ and that this has real effect or ought to have real effect in how we live. Some of us, Lord, have a tendency towards defining our own joy by moving away from anything that feels like a rule. And some of us, on the other hand, start creating this complex system of do's and don'ts. And we have realized, Lord, that there is no joy in that. There is no relationship in that. And so Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you use laser precision to show us what in me needs to die. And church, just as you take communion, I, I encourage you to use the words, just articulate it back to Jesus. Start off with legalism needs to die. Maybe the Spirit shows you certain rules that you are adhering to. They've got nothing to do with the gospel. But I pray at the same time, the Spirit nudges you towards life in Christ. So Holy Spirit, I pray that our souls would recognize our thirst. There's something in us would start to, yes, Lord, there is more than this, that song that we sang. I want to become fully alive to Christ. I'm now convinced that my Father has my best interests at heart. And so pray, church, the Holy Spirit makes you alive in Christ. Yes, Father, I pray as we take this warning from Scripture this morning, I pray for the opposite. I pray that since we died with Christ into the basic principles of this world, that we live as if we don't belong it. We do not submit to the world's rules. We gladly obey you, Lord, in ways that are not destined to perish. They are based on your wisdom and your love and your heart for us. Father, I pray for lives that do not have an appearance of wisdom, but that have genuine spirit-imparted wisdom. I pray for genuine, passionate worship. I pray for genuine humility where I consider you and others greater than me. I pray for any time that I, I say no to something 
It's because I'm trusting you at your word and that you are a God who has my best at heart. I pray for discipline that is under grace. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you are cleansing our sensual desires and that you are moving us forward in joyful lives of obedience. This is the promise of today. And I ask that you do it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.